Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Michael J. Mazur, Senior Political Scientist at the RAND Corporation. He is the author of 2019's Leap of Faith, Hubris, Negligence, and America's Greatest Foreign Policy Tragedy. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Since your book tells us a story of a sort, it seems sensible to start at the beginning, which would be maybe the early 90s uh, or possibly the late 80s and the American foreign policy relationship and America's relationship to Saddam Hussein in those years. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, the, you know, what happened eventually in 2003 with the U.S. intervention in Iraq has deep roots, as as you're saying. And, um, you know, the United States in the 80s and then into the 90s is confronted with this dual problem, which leads ultimately to a, pro- a policy they call dual containment of two regimes they didn't like very much that they thought of as a threat, Iran and Iraq. Um and obviously, in uh, you know, by 1990, uh, late 90, early 91, Saddam is showing himself as a particular threat with his invasion of Kuwait. But the U.S. administrations at the time kind of grappled with the issue, and under the first Bush administration, there was a little bit of a sense that maybe they could kind of get closer to Saddam, make him more of a U.S. friend as a counterbalance to Iran. And frankly, that you know, despite the fact that I think there's a lot of you know, belief out there that the United States cozied up to Saddam. And um, that really didn't go that far pretty quickly after uh, James Baker and some others were kind of looking into it. Uh, human rights issues and other things just sort of came up. And and U.S. intel assessments at the time that Saddam remained a threat of aggression to the region um, pretty quickly put significant limits on it. But it was interesting in the sense that Saddam always after that felt like a jilted lover a little bit, like the United States should have been his best friend. And didn't they realize that, you know, Iraq was their natural ally in the region and he and Iraq were destined to rule over the Arab world and the United States could support that. So um, it it left some uh, frustrations in his mind. But the U.S. toyed with that idea, but it didn't actually go very far. That's one of the more fascinating quotes you have in in the book is being asked, uh, Dick Cheney being asked during the first Gulf War, why didn't we go in? Why did we stop at the Kuwait border and not go in and, and remove Saddam Hussein? And, and what did he say about that? Well, he has. So this was in a, a PBS documentary where he was interviewed and they said, you know, part of the criticism at the time from the right was that they should have gone to Baghdad. And he laid out like in a long, you know, and it's quoted in the book, like a whole paragraph long answer. Um, basically saying, uh, you know, if we tried to do that, um, the whole world would have turned against us. There would have been an uprising in Iraq. It would have been very expensive. We would have gotten stuck there. All the things that happened in 2003 and all the reasons why people, um, you know, talked about before the invasion of why it could be a bad idea, he laid out. And I'm sure that his answer would be, well, my view changed because of 9-11, and I didn't feel like uh, we could leave Saddam in power anymore. Um, but he, he the, the, it, the quote makes clear that he was well aware of the risks of this uh, potential invasion, and he did very little, if anything, as vice president to try to make sure that the United States mitigated those risks, took them seriously later on. So that, that is a pretty striking quote. 
and it's not just 9-11. Of course, we'll get to 9-11 as being you know, such a huge event in so many different ways. But the relationship between the U.S. and Saddam is 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 not good in the 90s, uh, to say the least. And even by the Clinton administration, I mean, that's something you point out very effectively in the book, which, to be honest, is something we spend my my colleagues at Cato in the foreign policy department spend a lot of time wondering why there's such unanimous agreement so much on the sides of both the Democrats and Republicans that you know about the way the American foreign policy should be executed. And by the Clinton administration, it seemed like there weren't that many fans of of Saddam Hussein in the Clinton administration either. Yeah, right. Although you know. Uh, at the time, nobody was advocating for a U.S. invasion. So that is a very significant difference. I mean, the United States can decide that a regime is dangerous and, um, you know, uh, work in the direction of change. I mean, that raises the whole separate problem of covert regime change and um, the dangers of that and the fact that the United States has overused that tool as well. Um, but yeah, by the late 90s, it, it wasn't unanimous, but there was a significant subset of officials at the senior and, and mid-level in the Clinton administration who had decided that partly influenced by the intelligence that was going around even then that Saddam was seeking weapons of mass destruction, which at one time he had been. Um, and, you know, other uh, reports, I mean, the, the fact that he had tried to put a, an operation in, in place to, to kill George Bush Sr., these other kind of things, they just decided... U.S. policy in the Middle East can't be secure if Saddam is in power. Um, but that's kind of as far as they got. And they began to talk about ways of approaching that. The strategy documents that came out of that discussion have still not been declassified. But, you know, from my interviews with people, it, it's a lot of stuff well short of a U.S. invasion. So I think, but that does, you know, like you're saying, that establishes some of the reason why after 9-11, when the national shock of that happens, you do have a bunch of hawkish Democrats saying, well, yeah, maybe we do need to go get him finally, because they had been psychologically prepared for that by these these prior discussions. So Bush gets elected in 2000, and one of the reasons that you wrote your book, I think, is to at least go after some of the common ideas about what this war was about, which is, you know, one of them is retribution. Uh, you know, you... My, you tried to kill my father, or we didn't finish up the first time, and so I'm going to finish up with my father. And not just my father, like many of the same exact people were in the administration who had been in the first Bush administration. Uh, another one, of course, is the the war for oil, um, is is another cl classic narrative. And I would say a third one is is basically some sort of power grab, like international power grab based on a knowing lie would be like a knowing lie about weapons of mass destruction and connections to Al-Qaeda. I think those are probably the three most common uh, ideas and and you really go to uh, excellent lengths and extraordinary lengths to show that in many ways it's worse than this uh, if it was that simple if it were that simple it was just like oh these people lied and so next time we won't have you know or they or they were old oil executives so we wouldn't have to worry about that again if we don't ever elect another old oil executive but it's actually worse than that it's it's messianic they really believed this but on election day 2000 was that on his plate? I've heard George W. Bush was 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 Iraq and just the general kind of going and finishing the job. Was that in his things he wanted to do in his administration? Yeah, I've found nothing to suggest that it was at least not as some kind of an urgent, um, you know, uh, uh, goal or um, uh, 
and idea in his head. They clearly Iraq came up in, you know, and I've talked to a bunch of the folks that worked in the so-called Vulcans, the group of Republican foreign policy folks who were advising him during the campaign. And, you know, unanimously what they say is, sure, Iraq came up and their view was the same as the view of the folks in the end of the Clinton administration, which is we got to do something about this guy. But what we had to do wasn't at all clear. And then that becomes, you know, the the basis for the fact that in the first few months of the Bush administration before 9-11, there's a lot of just going around in circles about Iraq policy with a couple of people kind of saying, hey, let's find some, do sort of a Bay of Pigs kind of thing and find some Iraqi exiles that we can give some money to. Um, But nobody was talking about invasion and there wasn't any urgency to it. And, um, you know, everything that, you know, all the people that I spoke with and everything I found suggests that George W. Bush's real priorities were domestic, that, you know, things like immigration reform, education reform, social security reform, you know, good garden variety, Republican kind of um, domestic policies were where he wanted to make his mark. And he had this kind of instinctive sense of toughness in foreign policy, but really not shaped by any extensive experience or worldview on foreign policy. And, you know, there are a couple of these news reports that say that he met with some Iraqi American groups during the campaign and said, you just wait, I'll take him out. You know, politicians say stuff like that in front of every interest group they meet with to make them, you know, think that they're they're their person. So, no, I I found no evidence that there was a pre-cooked agenda to do whatever it took, including, um, you know, military intervention to take Saddam out at the beginning of the administration. But interestingly, Saddam was on uh, the the minds of American foreign policy establishment and then 9-11 happens. And how soon after 9-11 are they discussing Iraq as a possibility? Well, the same day, the same day. I mean, you know, the, some of the, the most famous, um, uh, revelations or declassified materials are the notes of one of um, Rumsfeld's top aides from about two o'clock that afternoon, where they're talking about, you know, and one of the, the infamous phrases there is some, something like, um, you know, uh, SH for Saddam Hussein, roll up things related and not or something like that. So that they were already talking about this broader campaign. And I think that's one thing that's lost about Iraq sometimes is that Iraq is really the um, kind of close cousin or 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 uh, related ag- agenda item to the global war on terror in general. So this initial decision, which people don't really talk about, it's 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 almost taken for granted that okay, after nine eleven, the right answer is to go big, to have a global war on all kinds of, and there was of course debate about it at the time, but not all that much, and. Uh, you know, once you've made that decision, then when you look at some of the declassified documents, you do a bunch of interviews and Iraq was one of a number of agenda items. I mean, when they were laying out the GWAT strategy, they had a number of countries on their target list, Iran being another. And, you know, they were at least within the policy process, they were pretty open about the fact that we want to knock over a bunch of these regimes that are quote unquote friendly to terrorism, which kind of means anti-American. Now, they never got to those, of course. Thankfully, they stopped after Iraq. But um, that notion of, uh, and, and that is something that on 9-11 and within the first two or three days, 
is just universally accepted in a massive piece of groupthink by the administration that the answer to this is not to just go after the perpetrators in Afghanistan, which would have been a perfectly reasonable strategy. The answer is to go global and some enormous uh, outburst of American power. And then Iraq becomes the first thing. It's almost like Saddam Hussein had the bad luck of being the most hated of those uh, uh, the countries on that list. Um, and a country where the military campaign looked doable. So, but theoretically, they could have gone after somebody else first. So it's really a par, you know, part and parcel of the larger global strategy that comes out of 9-11. What was sort of uniquely American about this? Because you use the word you know, messianic a lot, the missionary impulse, uh, which I think, I mean, having been, lived through the time, also was uniquely of the time post the fall of the Soviet Union that we had the right, the ability, and like the obligation to do this stuff. The other countries, you, there's a line in the book that says, as you said, like, if this happened in another country, it would have been the sensible response of that country to just go get the people who did it and then stop there. But that's not how America does things, especially at that time in world history. Well, right, right. And as we're seeing, you know, it's not necessarily how Russia does things either. I mean, their, their reaction to the Ukraine problem has a lot of the same hallmarks. Um, and it's in some ways grounded in kind of a similar national identity and self-image and form of messianism that, you know, they believe they have the right to control things um, in their neighborhood. But yeah, it's this, you know, and and it's obviously um, a self-image that takes root, I think, as early in some ways as World War II. And then the aftermath kind of percolates along during the Cold War. And then, as you say, really explodes into a new uh, kind of form after the Cold War where there was no one there to check our uh, power and, you know, it's this notion that the, the, the answer to something like this is, as you say, we have the right and in some ways we have the obligation to um, reshape the world in ways that we see fit because we're the good guys and that's our job. Um, and, you know, if you're talking about delivering food aid to starving people, that's a great impulse. When you're talking about knocking over governments and waging wars, it's incredibly dangerous. And this is one of the things I think we're still grappling with today, you know, and, uh, you know, and the foreign policy spectrum. I don't I don't consider myself a restrainer or a retrencher. So I have differences of views, but I strongly agree. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, certainly after the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan, there is this kind of new consensus that we got to redefine that messianic impulse. There's there's elements of, um, you know, goodness in it, but it has to be focused and limited and constrained and applied in the right way for the right kind of goals with the right tools. Uh, and that and, and I think the debate on that really, as much as there's been a lot of argument about ending forever wars and stuff, that debate is still really only starting about what that what shape that takes. I think a. Uh Iraq and Af Afghanistan, and this was a little bit true of Vietnam, but that narrative was a little different in the years after. But the other thing is the ability, a, a very big overestimation of how kick-ass our military is and that it can do anything it possibly wants if it puts its mind to it. Uh, I think that we were knocked down some pegs with I Iraq and Afghanistan, that that's not exactly how it is. 
Well, that's right. I mean, and depending on the kind of missions that you're talking about, right? I mean, they're absolutely kick-ass in terms of taking down the Iraqi military. Um, and this is a failing of the uniform military to a degree at the time, because if you'd asked them, uh, okay, are you guys going to be kick-ass at staying for 10 years and governing this country? They'd say, that's not what we do. And, you know, talk about another quote. Um, before, as is typical, you know, during presidential campaigns, it's typical for either the candidate or their top foreign policy advisor to write an article in Foreign Affairs magazine that lays out their views. Well, Condi Rice did one before the 2000 election, and there is a startling paragraph in there where she says, you know, these Democrats have been using our military like social workers, sending them all over the world to manage towns and, you know, and, and, determine who's at fault when somebody runs over somebody's dog. Um, but we can't, you know, the military exists to fight and win wars. And yet they turn around and make exactly the same mistake. So there's there was a recognition that U.S. military power, that, that, that the, the unipolarity of military power did not extend to counterinsurgency, running countries, nation building, state building, right? And then, so what you get is guys like Rumsfeld seemingly assuming We'll just barge in, throw somebody in the presidential palace, and then get the heck out and hope for the best because I don't want to. And, and then even Rumsfeld in February 2003, right, he gives this speech called Against Nation Building one month before they go into Iraq, basically saying we should not be doing exactly what we are about to start doing. But in his mind, he was hoping we'd get out quick. Of course, there's no way to do that when you invade and, and topple a government. And nobody held him accountable to that. And folks like, you know, I have to say, Condi Rice, there's a certain amount of accountability there that, you know, in a lot of ways, you can see places where she tried to push at consensus and ask hard questions. But ultimately, as the national security advisor, I think it was her job to go to the president and say, this business of what we're going to do with the country after we get there, no one has a damned clue, really. And until we do, I don't recommend you do this. And it never happened. Let's get a little bit into that sort of famous dramatus persona rogues gallery, maybe by yeah. some people's <laughs> idea. And, and Rumsfeld is the, is the first one. Uh, he's, he's an interesting guy. Uh, uh, very combative, had a, obviously a very long career at all levels of, of power in DC, but also super manipulative, extremely scheming. And, and his relationship with other people in the administration was not exactly great. Correct. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, particularly Colin Powell, even Condi Rice. I mean, one of the things that comes out that, you know, I, I sort of had noticed, but it took reading Condi Rice's memoir to really see how how much kind of knee-jerk misogyny is also involved in Rumsfeld and Cheney's approach to her. Um, not so, surprised. I'm not at all surprised. Yeah, I mean, they come from a generation, different generation, yeah. you know, it's not. Um, but But in so many different ways, yes. He simply did not think of himself as a team player. Uh, he thought from his distant experience, I mean, of course, you can go back and find these quotes on the White House tapes of Nixon talking about him when he was working in the Nixon administration, saying he's a nasty little SOB, but, you know, he was going to use him for his purposes. But even he knew he was kind of a, a political schemer. And he's one of these kind of, of folks who thinks, who's proud to be a bare knuckles no prisoners taken bureaucratic operator because he thinks that's the way government works. And to some degree it is, 
but there it also works in other ways and it can work much more effectively when the major participants in the administration don't view it that way. So if there's one person that was the most malign influence on this outcome, it was certainly Rumsfeld. And interestingly, the, the, you, he's often up there on the rogues gallery, but so is Dick Cheney. And they're often put above Bush, interestingly, because of yeah. this idea about no, Bush. No, I would do that. I would do but, that. But yeah, but definitely, I mean, the idea of Dick Cheney is the master planner, oh, right. manip- manipulator here. And the thing that I'd never encountered until reading your book was actually how much Dick Cheney had kind of changed in his long career in Washington to being sort of extremely pessimistic about democracy and this, just the desire to just get things done by the time he's, he's in the vice presidency. Yeah. And, and it's hard to know, like, there's a little bit of a difference of opinion among people that know him. Some who say he changed dramatically, some who say he didn't. I think, I think you just phrased the change very well, actually. I think that in some of his basic political views, people thought of him as a moderate for a long time because he speaks slowly and he doesn't always say what he thinks. And he was actually more kind of a radical conservative. But I think you're right that over time, similar to Rumsfeld, he came to believe that in government, if you want to get something done, you just have to shut everybody out and get it done. And, you know, that some of the most infamous examples are some of the presidential uh, orders he had signed on detainees and on climate change, where, you know, literally Colin Powell would discover him leaving the White House with a signed piece of paper that hadn't been coordinated with anybody. And that's... You know, I, what, what struck me in reading that is you, you go around giving all these fire-breathing speeches about the superiority of democracy and how evil dictatorship is and we're going to spread democracy to Iraq. And then the way you operate is entirely dictatorial. Uh, it You know, there's a certain amount of hypocrisy there. But yeah, that was certainly his style by, by that time. And then Bush uh, misunderstood, oddly, I think poss- possibly due to Trump, uh, dislike of Trump in enjoying a little bit of a renaissance in a yeah. way, uh, in terms of how he's characterized, but how would you kind of characterize his attitude at the time? Yeah, I don't, you know, he, he's such a fascinating and conflicting individual, um, you know, because there's no question that he was incurious. He didn't spend a lot of time getting into the details of things. You know, it, it is, it's interesting, like all these people, as you're talking about with Rumsfeld and Cheney and their view of governing, People's view of governing and leadership in these roles has a big effect. And and Bush had really bought into this pick good people and give them a mission and get out of their way kind of mode of leadership, which is true to a degree, except you still have to make sure there's checks and balances in the process. And um, he was way too instinctive and knee-jerk in his reactions, um, way too easily you know, and he had gotten this idea that adding on to the general messianic view of the United States, that he specifically had been chosen by God to lead the country. I think that can be exaggerated in kind of how weird it made him. But it, he, he had this idea that my instinct must be shaped by God if I was chased, chosen by God to be here. So now, on the other hand, I believe that he is a much, he's a basically, from everything I found, the people I talked to that worked with him, the evidence I found, I have a sense that he really is essentially well-intentioned for whatever that is worth, that he really believed, came to believe that this could be a force for good, this invasion of Iraq, 
and promotion of democracy, that it was, and, and it sort of comes from this idea that the way to respond to 9-11, yes, there's a very hard-nosed, you know, kill, kill them all aspect to it, which comes out in some actual quotes of his, but there's also an aspect that we have to offer people hope and a better future which is not really the way that Rumsfeld and Cheney would see it, but it was the way Bush saw it. And so, uh, you know, uh, he, he just, he needed much stronger. I mean, as a number of people told me, um, he's sort of a well-intentioned guy who uh, really needed better staff support from a chief of staff, a national security advisor, a dip, maybe a different secretary of defense who really would say, all right, Mr. President, we get your instinct, but, Here's what you gotta make sure. Here's what we all have to make sure of before we do this. And he, so it was kind of this worst of all worlds of a president that didn't give it the details, a couple of senior officials in Cheney and Rumsfeld who were just determined to make this happen and and really unconcerned about the the details themselves for a different reason. And then other officials like um, his chief of staff and Condi Rice who who didn't barge in and, and kind of stop it. Um, so, you know, but I mean, you know, one of the things that Bush's legacy that people forget is today, as we see, you know, it's still relatively low level, but some of the rising anti-Chinese sentiment growing with the U.S.-China rivalry, Bush was the loudest voice coming out after 9-11 saying this is not a war against Islam. You know, American Muslims are a wonderful part of our country. We should embrace them, that we should work with them to solve this problem. And I think that made an enormous difference. And a different president, you know, like one we've had relatively recently, would not have done that and could have caused enormous damage both to the Muslim American community and also to America's reputation abroad. So you get these little hints of like the 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 essentially good person that George Bush is in some ways but married to these other aspects that, you know, he didn't fully do his job as president in, in making this happen. Afghanistan happens. We have, there's a lot of support and goodwill for that mission. And then by early 2002, I mean, that's the thing you point out very well in the book is, is there's sort of an informal and a formal decision-making track happening here where in some real sense, the decision had been made to go into Iraq. And in some ways that surprised different staffers at different levels of government, but there was a conversation happening. And then all of a sudden you, you kind of describe it as it's like, it like emerged from the ether. And then it's just like, there wasn't a meeting. There wasn't a thing where they just said, this is going to happen one day, or, you know, it just said one day in the next couple of years, this is going to happen became just the unofficial agreed upon mantra. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that among some key people, that decision in their minds was really settled by November, December 2001. So within a month or two of 9-11. George Bush has said publicly, you know, when asked when was the decision made, he said, well, March 2003, that's when I gave the order. So that's when I made the decision like a year and a half later. But yeah, so he in um, in November, he goes to Rumsfeld and says, look, we got to start. I mean, put it this way. September 1415, that meeting at Camp David just after 9-11, the official Defense Department memo for that meeting said, we're going to do Iraq and Afghanistan as a package, and we may even do Iraq first. So within days of 9-11, you have very official statements. Now, they backed off of that. Bush clearly said, I'm not ready for that yet. But within a few weeks of that, he's going back to Rumsfeld saying, yeah, 
really get those war plans worked up again. So from that moment, I think in Rumsfeld and Cheney's mind, in the mind of Paul Wolfowitz and others, um, the decision that the, they feel like a decision's essentially been made and they're working to implement it. Meanwhile, other folks, especially at state and the intelligence community, are just kind of going along their way. And as you say, there's not a series of meetings where, okay, we're going to decide next week if we're going to invade Iraq. So they don't. And so you get that famous uh, episode in um, June, I think, of 2002, when the head of state policy planning, Richard Haas, goes to Condi Rice and says, I'm here to let's talk about invading Iraq. We better have a real debate about that if we're going to do this. And she says, no, it's done. It's The decision has been made. So by spring, summer of 2002, the National Security Advisor believes the decision has been made. And then late in 2002, Bush actually goes to her and to Colin Powell and maybe to others, uh, but two that we know of and says, so I'm kind of thinking we got to do this. You on board with that? So it's all these little bits and pieces that, yeah, accumulate to a decision without a decision, without people ever sitting down and saying, here's a proposal, here's the options, what are the costs and risks? And then after that moment where you, or the, not, not that time, you, you have very motivated reasoning where ev- kind of everyone's on board with that he has to go. And so then it's just a question of figuring out why to tell the world. And and that kind of culminates in Colin Powell's speech at the UN with all this information, but that they did not, two things, the WMDs and his contacts with Al-Qaeda, which we now know was incredibly bad intelligence, but they were so motivated in their reasoning that they just didn't really care to look twice at it. And on top of that, they didn't, they even said, even if he doesn't have WMDs, it's still worth taking him out. Yeah, that's some of the really striking comments you get at the time. And then some of the interviews I did um, and without naming, because my interviews were anonymous, but in public comments and like in their books, people like Paul Wolfowitz and and Doug Fife and others will say like, well, it kind of WMDs was the reason, but we just, like you're saying, we decided to take him out. So it, what it's interesting is even at the time, um, the intelligence community knew that the contacts with terrorism argument was BS. And they very explicitly said that and pushed back on it. So, you know, when we talk about the bad intelligence, it was really the WM, limited to the WMDs. And the contacts with terrorism stuff came from these kind of amateur intelligence analysts who've been writing books about the global spider web of conspiratorial terrorism and, you know, autocratic regimes coming to end the American way of life. Um, and the, the intelligence community was was very you know, clear that that was just not true. And then on the WMD side, the problem is this is kind of a bipartisan and longstanding problem. And, you know, I've talked to folks from, you know, State Department folks who were not at all sympathetic to the war, who nonetheless said, Mike, you got to realize everybody believed that at some level, like it was just taken for granted. But then what's interesting, and, you know, as I point out in the book, every time they really laid out the whole case, in front of someone, and this is nothing about George Bush. People think he's stupid. He's, he's very bright. And that's where Tenet's infamous um, comment about it's a slam dunk came from. Because just as Condi Rice had reacted earlier, when they laid out the case, Bush looked at the intel and said, wait a minute, this is all you got? I thought this was obvious, but I'm not seeing any smoking guns here. And Tenet said, don't worry, Mr. President, it's a slam dunk. 
another senior official badly serving him because if your president expresses doubt in, in, in the intelligence, the answer ought to be, you know, Mr. President, that's a good question. We're going to go back and really relook this. And there were a couple, well, we know from stuff that's been declassified, just a couple of cases, one by the J2, which is the intelligence arm of the joint staff, where analysts really raised hard questions and said, when you look at what we actually know for sure, it's very little about the WMD piece. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, the, the policymakers were being told by the intelligence community, um, this is real. This is true. So to some extent, and you know, and I would actually say you're talking about motivated reasoning. To me, the motivated reasoning applies even more to the aftermath piece, to the how can we, you know, what are we going to do with this country when we own it? Because that was a complete vacuum, apart from some random assertions by some people in DOD. And everybody that touched that issue came away saying, this is going to be a disaster. But the folks in charge just plowed forward. Some of the more interesting my parts of the book are when you have co comments like from Saddam or things that we know that Saddam believed or how, where Saddam was at this time in terms of you know you, as we discussed before he thought you know why why isn't America my friend more uh, but one of the ones that's pretty fascinating and obvious interestingly bilateral is that Saddam knew he didn't have W weapons of mass destruction. And he was pretty convinced that the Americans had to know this because, because, because he overestimated America's intelligence community. And, you know, we have some crack military and of course we know everything and we're spying on everyone. So he thought we were like gaslighting him essentially. Correct. Like that, that we, yeah, were just, absolutely. we had something else going on here. We were bluffing and we'd back off because we, we must know this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just like and, you said, he had intentionally dismantled the whole thing in the mid-90s, correct? He had sort of, yes, dismantled it with the instructions to keep a lot of the people, you know, employed and handy. And um, it it was his intent. And, and even folks who are agnostic about the war, um, like the, the Delphi Commission folks and people that have looked into this say he did have the intent of eventually resuscitating that program. Now, that is not a reason to go to war. There's a lot of other ways to control it. Um, but yeah, he had decided I got to get out from under these sanctions if I want to, if I want my economy to be the global hegemon that, you know, is appropriate to my regime. And, uh, so yeah, he got rid of some of it, hid some of it, and then didn't fully get out from under sanctions anyway. And so got pissed off, but by, by the war, he had not yet really recommitted himself. And so when Cheney's going around talking about he's one year away from a nuclear weapon and stuff, that was, I mean, that was well beyond what the intelligence said and uh, was, if not an outright lie, it was a, a massive um, misstatement of what the intelligence supported. The other interesting fact in this town out, this uh, before I got to DC, this all happened before I got here, but I do remember it, that it wasn't just the the White House and all of their allies. It was kind of the entire media ecosystem that started beating beating the drums of war together. And the think tanks, you know, Cato, you know, we like to be proud of the fact that we were the only major think tank to to really resist this war, um, and as well as the first Gulf War. But 
everyone kind of got on board. And you have these other strange connections. You have Christopher Hitchens, I think, having dinner with Paul Wolfowitz like once a week. And so Christopher Hitchens makes this massive switch. I know Andrew Sullivan always publishes this stuff about what he was wrong about. And, and he has an entire section of all of his blogging and he was completely wrong about it. So it, the, the drums of war started beating really heavily kind of across all institutions. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, of course, Cato has the advantage that it's against every war. So you know, if a war goes wrong, it'll it'll be on the right side. But no, it, it is. And, you know, frankly, when I got to the end of this book, I really wanted to tell the story of the policymaking process and the decision. But there is a separate story, which I don't think has been told yet, of the large, like you're saying, the larger ecosystem, Congress as well, but Congress and the media, basically, the media broadly defined, right? Columnists and you know, to some extent, sort of um, thought leaders, Christopher Hitchens types. Um, and, you know, you had some of the infamous cases like the, you know, New York Times WMD reporting, but most of, you know, the New York Times, the Post, the, the editorial pages ended up being in favor of the war. Obviously, you're going to have the Wall Street Journal um, uh, lineup. Um, in Congress, the vote was much less close than in 1990 than to evict Saddam out of a country he'd already invaded and threatened the region's oil supplies. Um, 9-11, of course, accounts for a lot of that. But, um, and and there's no conspiracy theory to be told here about people that are so different and in such different places in the political spectrum. And you know what I mean? I think it's just a very, uh, you know, worrisome uh, case study of how a nation can get to a moment caused by a national trauma in which they're just kind of in the mood to break some things, I guess. I mean, partly. And then combined with this messianic sense, you know, this idea that, which lives on today. You know, one of the things that's disturbed me about some of the commentary about the Ukraine war is it is exactly, some of it is exactly the same moralistic sensibility that, you know, I support aid to Ukraine. I believe the invasion is completely unjustified. NATO enlargement had a role, but did not justify this. It's Putin's aggression. We should, abs you know, sanctions are a good idea, all of that. But to turn it into a kind of normative campaign that the United States has to pound the table and cannot rest until it has, has righted all wrongs is a very dangerous thing to do. And that is, I think, the dark underside of this American messianic sensibility, which has done a lot of good in the world, but, you know, can't seem to keep itself from going to excess. We haven't talked about Colin Powell too much. Uh, and there's been accounts about, you know, when he goes to the UN and reads this speech, which is, uh, I think, quite effective from a PR standpoint. But did, did he believe that speech? Was he was he on board in the same way? To, and he was chosen specifically, I think, to give that speech due to his reputation for being right. a straight shooter, right? And and uh, you know, as a good public speaker and stuff. But did did he eventually kind of feel used if he didn't? If he didn't, he definitely felt that. used in part because he knew. I mean, the initial draft he got was full of a lot of garbage, um, and I believe it came from from Scooter Libby, but it was filled with all kinds of stuff that. You know, these people in DOD, this um, Office of Special Plans and folks in the vice president's office who had been cherry picking intelligence, jammed it full of every raw intelligence thing they could find. And so Powell had to go 
to spend some time himself and then leave his staff with folks from from the intelligence community to go through this thing line by line and weed out all the garbage. And of course, they didn't weed it all out because they didn't know some of it was wrong. Um, But uh, he definitely felt used later. On the other hand, so folks that were close to him uh, that I interviewed said he never really had a problem with taking Saddam out that there wasn't kind of a moral objection to the idea of invading and moving Saddam, which is a little surprising to me, given his Vietnam experience and um, his, his, you know, sort of detailed awareness of the military challenges that would come in the aftermath. Um, And there are folks that worked with him on a, you know, daily basis, very common basis, who say at some point he, he saw the writing on the wall. He was so pissed off at Cheney and Rumsfeld and he had lost faith to a degree, I guess, in Bush. And they never had a great relationship from the start that he just kind of said, all right, the hell with it. They've decided on it. You know, it's going to be their problem to solve and I can't stop it. And so he, you know, and he does request this famous meeting in August of 2002, which Condi writes helps to set up where he asked to, to make sure that Bush had thought through all the problems but the tone of the meeting was, Mr. President, you're aware that there are these potential risks, right? And Bush says, yeah. And he says, okay, just wanted to make sure. And then later on, Bush says, are you with me? And he says, yeah. So, you know, part of the issue with, and and of course, it's very dangerous to psychologize people at a distance or even close up. But, you know, at the end of the day, Colin Powell is a soldier and he does not in, in almost an, a, a, an inverse to Rumsfeld's view, he does not believe that his role is to seize control of the bureaucracy and make happen whatever he wants to have happen. He believes in, you know, loyally serving the process and his leadership, which is an admirable trait. But in this case, it's almost like they needed a counterpart troublemaker to Rumsfeld to screw up the process, to, to be willing to say, first of all, I'm going to spend a couple of weeks getting a bunch of people in my office to determine if we know what the hell we're doing when we get there. When I find out we don't, I'm going to stop this from happening until we do. That is something that in theory he could have done, but uh, it would have put his career right on the line. But beyond that, it I think he would have perceived it as disloyalty because it's not his decision to make. It's the president's decision to make. So, you know, another person that... Uh, it's, I think he has escaped some of the blame that he should share a bit because he didn't do some of these things. On the other hand, it was never really, he was never one of the ones pushing to go into Iraq. Um, But he ends up in kind of this unsatisfying middle ground that, and as you say, in that particular speech, being kind of used for his public reputation. You've alluded to it, and it, you don't get into it a ton in the book because it's really about the decision to go to war, which is already depressing enough, uh, especially as, as how you tell it. But uh, I'm always impressed when a book can take my already low expectations of government competence and make it even lower. Um, <laughs> because I, I had been like, well, you know, they went in there with a bad plan for the for after the invasion. They had a bad plan. But it's actually worse than that. There was no plan. And to some extent, Rumsfeld, I think, is 
at fault for that because he tried to make sure there wasn't one because as you said his his idea was like wham bam thank you ma'am we'll be gone in 90 days and we'll just let and then iraq will take over and rule itself so he didn't want there to be a plan and so you have all these different conflicting people with different ideas which ends up just being complete dysfunction on the ground yeah 100 percent. and i mean the 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 idea that rumsfeld actively did not want there to be a plan. I think the evidence is overwhelming, but there isn't a smoking gun to prove that because he just doesn't say much and put much down on paper apart from his million little pointless snowflakes. Um, but yeah, the, and, and you know, to this day, Wolfowitz and Feith will say, oh, we had a plan. We had this thing called the Interim Iraqi Authority. And that's just not true in the sense of any... Now, you know, when the U.S. military actually plans to go and do something uh, at length, even if it's, you know, provision of humanitarian aid or the initial phases of of peace enforcement and, and nation building, it can do a fine job. It's just that, you know, another personality here we haven't talked about is Tommy Franks, the CENTCOM commander. And, you know, so here's the guy who's on the uniform side of this and resists his his own command's efforts to plan for what they call phase four and tells them, no, 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 look, I've been told by the political people, that's their job. State's going to roll in. Nobody believed that. There was no one who thought state was in a position to do that. You know, years later, you get talk about a civilian surge and the State Department still doesn't have the capacity to do it. So um, he was another person who just sort of closed his eyes and said, I've been told to plan for this. I'm doing it. And anything outside that is outside my lane, which I think is a complete dereliction of, of responsibility. Um, but, you know, look, I don't want to undermine anybody's faith in government as a rule. Government can do amazing things when there's a clear goal, somebody clear in charge, you know, a variety of these conditions, none of which were met in this case. And when you go to war and put the lives of your service members and the people in the country you're invading at risk, um, that is an absolute moral failing. One of the things that shocks me in a, many in wars that we've gotten involved with, uh, but especially Iraq, I think, is that there seem to be, because of some of the groupthink impulses, messianic stuff, almost a you know, no desire to really research the country itself and figure out, well, how how is this country split up? What are the different ethnicities? What are the different historical alliances? How is Saddam currently ruling the place? You know, there just seems to be no interest. I, I always try and say, if someone, if you just wanted to invade Ohio, and you say, all right, let's say we invade Ohio, we got, we were to set up a, a government in Columbus, but you have to be aware that the Southern Ohioans are much more like Southerners, and the Northern ones are much more like Michiganders, or they might hate me for that. And you have Rust Belt people, and there's all these different cultures and different stuff that you couldn't just be like, well, you know, it's just that simple. You just invade Ohio, put a government in Columbus, and there you go. It it would ne it would obviously never work that way. And they get there, and they're like, wow. Uh, Saddam held the country together as a series, I think the uh, phrases of, you know, tiny kleptocracies that were reporting to him in different ways. And no, and there was no, you know, trying to figure out who was going to pick up the trash or who was going to do the basic functions of governance. Like it seemed like no one had even thought about it. So suddenly these 20 year old, you know, sergeants are doing local government, government functions. And it's just, it's sort of stunning. And how long does that go on? How, I mean, I know the book is not entirely about that, but like, like, is there a point when suddenly they're just like, well, no, we have to stay like, and this is not gonna, this is not gonna be quick. Well, it, it that happens gradually. Um, I mean, just quickly, I would say your point about not understanding the countries we're dealing with is hundred percent right. And is, is, 
one of the classic American failings, in part because, as you say, we've got this sense that, you know, we're the good guys riding in. So, you know, and sort of a rationalistic enlightenment view of we'll show up and make everything better. and We don't need to know that much. And, you know, you gave one analogy. Something that struck me during this process was uh, one of the most instructive shows about counterinsurgency, I think, is the show Justified. I don't know if you're a fan of Justified, but this place in, um, you know, this particular uh, Harlan County, right, where this guy, um, this marshal comes back, uh, Raylan, to uh, enforce the law. And he's from the area. His dad's there. He knows all the people. He dug coal, you know, with the criminals. And this incredibly intense set of relationships and histories and everything and then you see these FBI people come from time to time who don't know what the heck's going on and they can't begin. And you think, OK, even within the United States, when people from outside a specific county come in and try to, like, manage the situation, they don't know what the heck's going on. They can't master. I mean, to me, it's like a perfect analogy for figuring out tribal dynamics in Iraq or Afghanistan. But, you know, to answer your question, yes, um, it, it becomes clear within a couple months in some ways, because, you know, as you were saying, Rumsfeld had this idea that we're going to move out pretty quickly. And so they had a fairly, they, they already had on paper a process of withdrawing a lot of the troops that were there. And that had begun within a few weeks after, a couple of weeks after getting there. And there was a point at which, and I don't remember the exact date, where they had to sort of put an end to that because it was becoming clear that, I mean, if you remember, there was a period March, April, May of 2003, when things were still relatively quiet, in part because the Iraqis were kind of looking around saying, you know, and one of the Iraqis, and I didn't get a chance to do a ton of interviews with Iraqis, but a couple dozen, and um, one of the former government officials I talked to said, yeah, we figured this was going to be just like 1945 Japan. You guys are going to come in and turn us into this, you know, wonderful, beautiful, advanced society at peace with itself. Um, and they waited a few months and then realized the Americans didn't have any clue what was going on um, and were potentially trying to shove some people into power like Ahmed Chalabi that had no basis of power in the country and were beginning to, beginning to restrict the rights of some Iraqis in different ways. And then looting begins. The Americans don't control that. So it's a couple months of quiet, some troops starting to withdraw. Then some of the violence starts to pick up uh, in the spring and into the summer of 2003. And... I think it's between about like May and August, September, October that, you know, um, and dur- the, more at the beginning of that process, like in at the beginning of May, you have the arrival of, of Jerry Bremer and the um, uh, Coalition Provisional Authority taken over from Orha and um, uh, Paul Bremer, I'm sorry, and uh he arrives with a very different notion too. So that's another critical kind of threshold because he got there thinking, yeah, we're not going to be able to leave immediately because it would be chaos. And if we, if, if, if the president wants democracy in Iraq, we're going to have to dig in and stay for a while as an occupying authority. So in some ways, I guess I would say the beginning of May with the arrival of Bremer is from a policy standpoint, the critical threshold to we're going to stay uh, in the military, it kind of then kind of be- becomes more apparent over time. But to our earlier point about disconnection, Bremer, there were still, you know, uh, um, 
Khalilzad and some other folks were still scheduled to fly into Iraq to hold various meetings to get Iraqis in charge of a new government so we could leave at the same time Bremer's getting there. Uh, Rumsfeld is shocked by Bremer's decision that we're not leaving. So there's no coordination of that. That's just complete chaos. It's obviously a huge tragedy. Uh, probably something like 250,000 Iraqis were killed in the war, uh, I think is the number that's usually discussed, and uh, thousands of American soldiers. Uh, and, and the aftermath here is, I mean, the, the lessons, we don't seem to, I don't think Americans... And this is like a little crass, but we don't tend to care that much about, you know, hundred thousands of dead uh, non-Americans as, as maybe yeah, we should. Sadly, um, yeah. Um, and so we have this this tragic thing that we now have some amount, I think, of collective guilt for, and and we understand it was a mistake. Um, but you kind of mentioned it earlier the kind of lessons that we would we would take from this. You would hope to like. I mean, is it something that is unique enough that? it would only occur in a post 9-11 kind of environment if something like that has to happen to make something like this happen, um, that maybe we don't need to be so worried about it happening again. Well, if we're talking about sort of an unprovoked invasion like that, unprovoked in a immediate sense, yeah, I think you'd probably need some kind of provocation, but there's always provocations. I mean, that's part of the problem is whether, I mean, Pearl Harbor is a different thing, but um, you know, the Cuban revolution wasn't launching attacks in the United States, but was perceived as a provocation and a threat, um, which then led to the Bay of Pigs and then discussions in the Cuban Missile Crisis of coming very close to invading that country. Um, so uh, the, the challenge is to be able to, to manage provocations, you know what I mean? And in that sense, I mean, I do think... Um, there's a very different view of that kind of stuff today than there was then. Um, the general foreign policy, uh, you know, if somebody were to, to propose, um, particularly, you know, and if you look later, like a Lib Libya style uh, operation, which, you know, the defenders of that will now say, well, we never intended regime change that. Well, come on. Once, once you're protecting people in a country, this is where it's going to go. That was obvious from at the time. Um, so I think that there's a lot more wariness, clearly in American politics. I mean, when you look at the number of Republicans that just voted against a non-binding resolution supporting the NATO alliance, you know, and what this, you know, the prior president said about U.S. alliances, um, we are in a different place. But the challenge, I think, is going to be how do you manage general challenges of U.S. foreign policy, threats, risks, and then the provocations that happen you know, short of uh, aggression in North Korea. They've been doing a lot of stuff that, uh, look, back in the Clinton administration, they came very close to thinking about a, a military attack on North Korean nuclear facilities. Now that's out of the question because they have too much and their retaliatory capability is too big, at least against South Korea and Japan. But nobody's talking about military action against Korea, not seriously. Uh, the Iran thing worries me because the opponents of the, the JCPOA don't seem to have I mean, it's almost like invading Iraq. It's like, we're going to do this. We're going to get rid of the treaty, have something better. What's better? I don't know, but it's got to be better than that. Well, eventually, the only way to stop it is with military action. And I think we're going to be able to avoid that. Uh, in Ukraine, I think the administration's done a very good job of managing the pressures and doing enough to kind of support the victim of aggression while making very clear that we're not going to get involved in this fight. So 
that to me is the challenge going forward in terms of an Iraq style thing of um, we're going to go topple that government and put a new government in place. My sense is that for a long time, it would have to be a pretty extreme situation to justify something like that. I, I hope and think we've kind of learned our lesson, but part of our history shows, you know, Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, how close we came there. Um, you know, Libya, um, a bunch of the covert actions we've done. You can get yourself involved in a scrape in a lot of different ways. It doesn't just take, you know, loading up the troops and going off to do a, a self-determined invasion. So it's going to be just a continuing process of managing uh, this, this instinct America has to go forth into the world and just solve problems. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.